This is Jason Ruinstein from Machon Hadar. The 13th of Nisan, not the 13th of Adar, is the date that holds the key to understanding the Megillah. It was on the 13th of Nisan that Haman chose and announced that the 13th of Adar would be the date to exterminate the Jews of the Persian Empire. The contrast between the Megillah's 13th of Nisan and the Torah's first 13th of Nisan, the eve of the Exodus, could not be sharper or more bitter. That year, the 13th of Nisan brought the Israelites to the threshold of the inevitable and overwhelming redemption that God had been fashioning, the redemption that would take place on the very next day, the 14th. In the Megillah, the 13th of Nisan is instead a date where the Jews learn of their imminent destruction, to occur on a future date chosen by chance, not by God. Rashi highlights the irony of this timing. In the next chapter of the Megillah, Esther ordains three days of fasting, which Rashi determines occurred on the 14th, 15th, and 16th of Nisan, the days of Pesach and the nights of the Seder. According to Exodus, these days are to be perpetual observances of sacrifice and feasting commemorating God's mighty redemptions of the past. Instead of feasting, Shushan's Jews fast in desperation, hoping to avert imminent death. The alignment of these dates highlights one of the most remarkable aspects of the Megillah. It is again and again the opposite of Pesach. The Pesach story moves from its origins in Egypt and culminates in the land of Israel. Purim's story is static, ending in Shushan where it began. In the Pesach story, God's mighty miracles are responsible for Israel's salvation. In the Megillah, it is a combination of human political skill and something very close to luck. Literarily, the victory of Pesach was assured at the outset, promised as it was to Avraham all the way back in Breshit. But at no point in the Megillah is the salvation of the Jews foretold or promised. We don't know until the very end whether the book we're reading is a second Exodus or a second Jeremiah in which the temple will be destroyed. And it is possible that the outcome of the story is unknown or even unknowable before the events unfold. This uncertainty cuts deep, suggesting a future that is uncertain and precarious. One of the subtlest and deepest oppositions between the Megillah and the Pesach story is in the Megillah's final narrative moment, when Ahasuerus raises taxes. This detail is hard to parse other than as a contrast to the conclusion of the Exodus. As the Israelites stand on the far side of the sea, Egypt's crops have been destroyed by hail and locusts, so there's nothing left to tax and its army has been crushed by the mighty waters, so there is no one to collect attacks. In contrast, the Megillah closes with a strengthened Persian state, one with wealth and with the means to extract it. The implication is clear and unnerving. The threat of Egyptian slavery was definitively ended with the decimation of Paro's army. But, as we learn through nine chapters of the Megillah, There are no real checks on the power of the Persian government. The stronger it becomes, the more formidable a threat it represents to its Jewish and other residents when, and not if, 
Esther and Mordechai leave power. All of this culminates in one of the most politically important moments in the Jewish tradition. The Megillah describes Mordechai at the apex of his political career as, quote, popular with the multitude of his brethren. And how could he not be? But read hyper-literally, the phrase is, popular with most of his brethren. Rashi takes this opening and comments, most of his brethren, but not all of his brethren. This teaches that some members of the rabbinic court opposed Mordechai because he abandoned Torah study for politics. Beyond offering a learned backstory for Mordechai, Rashi reveals an irreducible uncertainty that arises at the Megillah's beginning and remains just as vexed at its conclusion. Rashi implies two scenes. The first scene is early on, when the Jewish community confronts the impending crisis. Without God's narration or intervention, diverse responses recommend themselves. Mordechai chooses one, seeing the moment's urgency as requiring him to divert his energies from the sacred precincts of the Beit Midrash to the public sphere. His colleagues see the same crisis, but instead see it as a call to redouble devotion to the piety of Torah and Tefillah that carries with it the promise of salvation. Perhaps these erstwhile colleagues observed the Pesach Seder that year in Shushan, rejecting Esther's call to fast, convinced that devotion is all the more needed in times of crisis. Of the two scenes that Rashi implies, Mordechai's entrance into politics is the less fraught. Rashi suggests that the rift that opened with the onset of the crisis is not healed by that crisis's resolution. In the second scene that Rashi implies, the members of the rabbinic court argue against the idea that Mordechai is responsible for the Jews' salvation. While Mordechai can point to his resourceful and courageous efforts as the cause of the Jews' salvation, his former colleagues on the rabbinic court can equally credit their own prayer and study as responsible for the providential coincidences of the Megillah, who, after all, was responsible for Ahasuerus' insomnia, or for the reading of Mordechai's section of the court history on that fateful night, if not God. Sharing the same set of facts, Mordechai and his former colleagues are divided by irreconcilable interpretations, with no divine revelation to decide between them. In this sense, the Megillah inaugurates our political reality. Its world is ours, a world in which uncertainty is not confined to the future, but fills the past as well, giving rise to irreconcilable worldviews. In one view, perhaps Mordechai's, Pesach is irrevocably past, its miracles no longer reliable or certain. But in another, that of his rabbinic colleagues, Pesach's saving powers endures, not just as possibility, but as reality. A modernist narrative would have Purim supersede Pesach, inaugurating a disenchanted, uncertain world. But the Megillah on Rashi's telling is not modern, but postmodern. The world can now be interpreted as contingent and secularized, but this interpretation is not, and can never be, conclusive. It will always be challenged by those who succeed in interpreting the present as a faithful, though subtle, fulfillment of the promises of the Exodus. By beginning the year with Pesach and ending with Purim, 
We don't move in a linear way from providence to chance, but from certainty to possibility, from one interpretation to many. And in this way, Purim ushers in the world we recognize, one imbued with equal measures of promise and precarity.